Attributes of God study. This is week 20 of 21, and so we are in the home stretch now. And so we will wrap it all up next week, and um, then after that, it'll be time for Thanksgiving break already. And then we'll come back from Thanksgiving. We will have a prayer meeting focused on our families. As it comes into the holiday season, a lot of us carry different burdens for family members and um, different things going on. And so we want to have a, a focused prayer time that the week after Thanksgiving to pray over our families. And as we get into our Christmas gatherings and stuff, to pray for family members who perhaps don't know the Lord or prayers for one another to be encouragements or whatever burdens you're carrying for loved ones, we're going to have a prayer meeting for that. And then December 6th and 13th, we're going to do two Wednesday nights of everyone together, children, youth, and adults. And on December 6th, we're going to do a service project and movie night. We're going to put together goodie bags for first responders in the community. And once we get those done, we're going to watch a Charlie Brown Christmas together. And then on our with hot chocolate and popcorn and all that. And then on our way out, we're going to take those goodie bags to fire stations and police stations in the area on the way home to bless those guys in Jesus' name. So that's December 6th. And then December 13th, we're going to have our first ever Gingerbread House Fellowship. And we have CJ's office full of Gingerbread House kits. And on December 13th in the gym, again, children, youth, and adults will all be together. And we're going to build gingerbread houses together and decorate them. And we'll let, you know, families do it or you can get some friends together to do it. And so that's coming December 6th and 13th. So we're going to do some more things. You guys have said you wanted more church-wide fellowships. And so that's coming beginning of December. So that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. And so I want to make you aware of that. But if you want to go deeper in the attributes of God, I hope these 20 weeks so far and the next week has kind of whet your appetite for you to go deeper in who God is. We've added a shelf in the hallway in our resource center with four books about the attributes of God. If you want to go deeper in what we've been studying, I've got several things I want to commend to you out there. One is the classic from J.I. Packer, Knowing God. It's not necessarily just a study of the attributes, but it's got a lot of the attributes we talk about. You've heard me quote J.I. Packer a lot, but this is an incredible book to help you think through who God is and how do we know him. And so if you've never read this, this would be a great one to read as we come up on the holiday season. If you want to go a little bit deeper in each attribute, we talked about A.W. Pink's The Attributes of God. Short, maybe five or six page chapter on each attribute, but it is like digging for gold. It is rich and deep on each one, full of scriptures. And again, these are all out in the hallway out there. Rosemary Jensen's Praying the Attributes of God. You've heard me a lot of weeks mention a prayer at the end. This comes from her. She was the founder of Bible Study Fellowship, or at least one of the early leaders in that. And she takes each attribute of God we've talked about and some others, and she just lists the scriptures for it. There's no commentary. It's just a, it's just a page of each attribute of where you find holiness in Scripture with a prayer you can pray. So it just helps you see where it is in Scripture. And there's one more that just came out that I discovered about three weeks ago. I wish I had found at the beginning of the study because I would have quoted this guy a lot. And it's called God Is, and it's a devotional guide to the attributes of God. And it's just basically a devotional book dealing with each attribute. And it is just rich. It's really good. Mark Jones is a, is a, is a pastor up in uh, British Columbia in Canada. And it's a great book on the attributes. So all four of these are out in the hallway and the resource center. If you'd like to go deeper as you get into Thanksgiving, Christmas, and have some time to read, I would commend all four of those to you. They're in the top middle shelf if you want to go browse those or look at those. Well, we come to week 20. Tonight we're talking about God's majesty and God's glory, right? No sweat, easy topic for tonight, right? God's majesty and God's glory. As we start tonight, there's a quote on your handout, if you all have the handout, from Martin Luther. And it's just a, a kind of a humbling quote. He says, your thoughts of God are too human. I just as I read that, I was like, how often are our thoughts of God put on our level? That we're not really thinking of God in his greatness and his, gland, and his grandeur, his glory and his majesty. So we want tonight, as we finish up the attributes of God tonight, not finish up, it sounds like we've gotten done, but as we finish our study of the attributes of God this week and next week, I just want to remind us that even as we go deep, our thoughts of God are often still too human. And we just continue to want to grow in who God is and study him more because he is incredible to learn about. Tonight, as we think about majesty and glory, I've got two scriptures to get us thinking on that. First is Psalm 72, 19. Blessed be his glorious name forever. May the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen 
and amen. And what a, a cry for God's people that we're crying out that we want God's name to be known and for being glorious. The whole earth to be filled with his glory. And we'll see more of what that means tonight. And then Psalm 145, verse 5. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. And I hope that's the, our prayer. I hope that's our pattern of what we want our lives to be like. That as we think about not just on these 21 weeks of this study, but in our daily walk with the Lord, that we will take time to think about and meditate on his glorious splendor, his majesty, and his wondrous works. And so we'll talk tonight about what will happen in our lives if we do that. So turn the page, page two. What we're coming to this week and next week are called the summary attributes of God. Now, these are a little bit different because they're not attributes in the same sense as what we've previously studied. We've talked about the communicable attributes, the attributes that God shares with us in part, his holiness, his love, his justice, things like that. Talked about the incommunicable attributes, the attributes God does not share with us. The fact that he is eternal, that he is outside of time, that he has all power, you know, different attributes like that. And these are a little bit different because these are more like summaries of who God is. They're not so much a particular attribute. It's a summary of all the attributes together and what that makes God. As you think about that, these are descriptions of God and all of his perfection. If you read different people, they will have different summary attributes for God. But the four you'll most likely find from different authors are these four. First of all, perfection. If you think about everything we've talked about over the last 20 weeks, we say that God is a perfect God. Herman Bavink, who's a theologian, said this, God's highest perfection is the sum and substance of all the attributes which has been discussed so far. God is the sum total of all excellencies, the one than whom no greater, higher, better can exist, either in thought or in reality. And so as we think about who God is, his perfection, that everything we've talked about for these two weeks is showing the perfection, how amazing God is, that there's nothing wrong in him. The second one that would be summary attribute is God's blessedness. Now, according to Grudem, God's blessedness means that God delights fully in himself and in all that reflects his character. So what, basically what blessedness means is we've seen all these things about God for the last 20 weeks, and God likes it that way. That God is happy with it that way. This is who he is, how he's ordained things to work, and he's pleased with that. So God is blessed. He's happy. There's joy in him. He delights in who he is and how he expresses himself in all of his attributes. We're not going to focus on those two. I mean, those are ones if you want to go deeper in them. A lot of these books go with them. But we're going to talk tonight about majesty and glory. Some people differentiate majesty and glory, but we're going to try to treat those in very similar ways tonight in our study of this. For me, they're kind of very hard to separate. So let's go to this question. What is majesty and what is glory? Now let's look generally before we go into specifics. Generally, majesty means greatness, impressive beauty, or royal power. Now, when you hear the word majesty, where have you heard it used before? Where? In the Psalms, okay. Outside of scripture, where have you heard majesty used generally? Royalty. There's a hint there on your, on your page. There's a picture there, right? What, what, what's the queen called in England? Her majesty. Why is she given the title majesty? Well, because of her royal power, because of the beauty of what she wears, the crown jewels there. If you've ever been to London and seen the crown jewels, it's, it's majestic. So you, you use the word majestic in that sense, or majesty. It's an English word that comes from a Latin word that just, again, means greatness, beauty, or power. We use it not just with royalty. We use it in creation. Have you ever heard the expression... That was a majestic sunset last night. Or the mountains out in Colorado are majestic. We use words like that because it's just we don't know how to express the beauty we've seen. The first time you ever went to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been out there, and you looked across this vastness of God's creation, and there's not much to say except for, wow, this is majestic, you know, because of the greatness of it all. Well, what about glory? How do we define glory? Well, it's a common term that can be hard to define. It simply usually means 
outside of Christianity in general culture, <coughs> excuse me, means honor or excellent reputation. It's a recognition of greatness. It means honor or reputation. Now, we do this in sports. I don't know which team you cheer for. I grew up you know, going to Auburn games, and there's actually a cheer at Auburn games. Glory, glory to old Auburn. Glory, glory. And 86,000 people in the stadium shouting glory, glory to Auburn. What are they trying to do? They're expressing the fact they believe Auburn is great and has an excellent reputation, which varies between season to season. But the point is they're honoring their team. They're honoring <coughs> who Auburn is, and, and they're ascribing worth to. They're praising. If you want to see one of the largest worship services in Alabama, you go to either Jordan here or go to Bryant and Denny. And you see people who are sold out in devotion and worship, celebrating the majesty, the greatness of everything that they love about football. So that's how we use majesty and glory generally in the culture. Now, how do we ascribe those words to God and try to understand what we mean by this? And so, again, I'm going to combine these terms together tonight. Some will separate them, but I'm going to kind of put them as one and the same idea. So how do we define God's glory and majesty? Now, most of these definitions will be talking about God's glory. I think they could be used interchangeably. So Thomas Watson said God's glory is the sparkling of the deity. <clears throat> Again, get your, let your mind think about that one. The sparkling of the deity, something that shines. And you got engaged and you had a sparkling engagement ring and the shine around that or the sparkling of whatever it is that you like. But think about all the greatness of God and his glory, his majesty. It's a sparkling around him because of his greatness. It's an interesting way to think about it. Wayne Grudem says this, God's glory is the creative brightness that surrounds God's revelation of himself. It is very appropriate that God's revelation of himself should be accompanied by such splendor and brightness. For this glory of God is the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. So you take all of God's attributes together, and when you see God, there's a brightness around him because he's so majestic, so glorious, there's brightness that accompanies him. <clears throat> Herman Bavink, a Dutch theologian we quote a good bit, said, God's glory indicates the splendor and brilliancy that is inseparably connected with all of God's virtues and with his self-revelation and nature and grace. So again, it's his splendor, it's his brilliancy, it's all of him together. All these attributes we've talked about for 20 weeks together, and there's a brilliancy, a brightness about it. But my favorite one so far is Mark Jones. He's the guy from that new book that I was mentioning, God Is. And he has this great definition for God's glory. So there are basically two ways that we can speak of God's glory. A term that denotes his divine splendor and the magnificence for which he is worthy of honor. First... God's essential glory represents the sum of his attributes, which together make him the God of glory. So stop there. So God's glory is everything we talked about for 20 weeks, plus so much more put together, and it makes him the God of glory. Second of all, there's a glory ascribed to God in terms of what his creatures bring to him. This latter glory has in view our praise, worship, obedience, and delight as we keep the name of the Lord holy in all that we do. So what is God's glory? It's a sum total of everything that there is about God. His justice, his love, his wrath, his mercy, his kindness, his righteousness, everything about him, <coughs> excuse me, put together and the brilliance that goes with it is his glory. And he calls us to glorify him as we see that. So turn to page three. Where do we see God's majesty and glory throughout scripture? Well, there's several different ways we see it. So I've tried to break it down for us in different ways. First of all, we see God's majesty and glory used to describe the light excuse me, of God's presence. And we've seen this in some of the definitions, but we'll see this in several places. Exodus chapter 16, verse 10. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked towards the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. The brightness, the presence of the Lord, there was a brightness that went with it. They could see in the cloud. They couldn't see a shape of the Lord, because remember the attributes of God we talked about. God is spirit, doesn't have a shape, doesn't have a form, immaterial. 
God is a spirit. But they saw his glory, the brightness of him in the cloud. Or Psalm 104, 1 and 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. You can let your mind think through this. As the psalmist is trying to describe who God is and what he's like, he's clothed with splendor. He's clothed with, clothed with majesty. And it's like with light as a garment. <coughs> Excuse me. Luke chapter 2, verse 9. This is the Christmas story. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Talk about that in just a minute. When we think about the glory of God, we kind of have these happy thoughts with it, and there are happy thoughts with it. But in the Bibles, we'll see most of the time the glory of God is revealed, there's a lot of fear that goes with it. When the Lord in his brightness appears, fear fills the heart of people. And then Revelation chapter 21, verse 23, when there's a new heaven and a new earth, future heavenly city, look at what it says. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives us light, and its lamp is the Lamb. That's a cool thought to realize that <clears throat> one day we won't need the sun for the earth is circling around. We won't need any of the stars in the galaxy to give light because God, his glory is so bright. His splendor is there. Hey, there's so much light associated with the grandness of all of his virtues and character and attributes. There's no need of physical suns anymore because there's just light from the presence of God one day. So we see God's majesty and glory used to describe the light of God's presence. Second of all, majesty and glory is used as a title of God in different parts of Scripture. Psalm 24, verses 7 through 10. You listen to how this phrase is repeated over and over. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, <coughs> strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. So who is God? He is the King of of glory, Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. It's described to Jesus. He's the Lord of glory. Or Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So again, the... The description for God the Father, he's the majesty on high. He is so glorious and so majestic. Our words struggle to describe him, but he's simply the king of glory, the Lord of glory, the majesty on high. But third there on your page, majesty and glory is used as the description of God himself. The psalmist says in Psalm 144, sorry, 145, on the glorious splendor of your majesty, knowing your wondrous works, I will meditate. Describing who God is, his majesty, the splendor of his majesty. Or 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his what? Of his majesty. We saw, when they said, when we saw Jesus, Peter says, we saw his majesty. Turn to page 4. This also, majesty and glory is used as a description of God's greatness. Now this is very similar to the last category, perhaps we could have combined them, but now it's describing what God does, how God acts, and the majesty and glory that's associated with that. First Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the what? And the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom of the Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So you look at how God's majesty is tied to his sovereign rule here. His are the kingdoms. He's exalted as over all the earth, all the heavens. He's over all, and he's majestic in that role, doing that. 
for the book of Job again. And have you noticed almost every week of these 20 weeks, we found a lot of the attributes of God in Job? Job is a great book to go to to study the attributes of God. We've seen almost everything we've looked at in the book of Job as we've gone through this study. Job chapter 37, verse 22 through 24. This is Job's friend Elihu who's speaking to him. Out of the north comes golden splendor. God is clothed with awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is great in power. Justice and abundant righteousness he will not violate. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own conceit. There's some good counsel there. A lot of Job's friends gave a lot of bad counsel, but here's some pretty good counsel coming to Job on this one. God is clothed. Again, notice the imagery that how do we describe God? You put all the attributes of God together. How do you describe him? It's like he's clothed in majesty. You put his holiness, his justice, his righteousness, his love, all these things together, and, and he just exudes. I don't know if that's even the best way to describe it. Majesty from him, brightness from him in that. And again, his majesty is tied here to his greatness and his power, to all these different attributes we've been talking about also in Job, this is still Elihu talking to him. And now he's challenging Job, if Job can even be like God, to question God. And look at how Elihu answers, raises this question of Job. Job chapter 40. Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. He's saying, Job, you're not like God. God's the one who's clothed in glory and splendor. God's the one who is majestic and dignified. Who are you to talk back to God and what he's, why he's done what he's done? The majesty and glory of God is something that Elihu is holding up for him right there. Or in Psalm chapter 93, the Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He's put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. And he's robed in majesty. So what do we do with all these things? Let's try to pull these together into a few ideas of what do we learn about God's majesty and glory. Number one, God is zealous for his glory. God is zealous for his glory, for his majesty to be known. Isaiah chapter 48 verse 11, for my own sake, for my own sake I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. Friends, that's not one we typically memorize in our children's Sunday school classes through growing up. Any of you memorize this one in Around the same time you did John 3.16? This would be a good one to teach our kids early in life, though. Because everything in life is not about us. It's about the glory of God. And God makes it so clear. And he repeats at the beginning, For my own sake, for my own sake, I do it. How should my name be profaned? My glory I will not give to another. God is jealous. He is zealous for his glory, his majesty to be on display. And that's what we all see and we all worship. And if I can remind us back to the attribute of God's jealousy that we looked at many weeks ago, from the ESV study Bible, God's jealousy is not the sinful emotion of envy that characterizes human jealousy. It is God's righteous concern to protect the truth that he is the creator of the universe and that he alone, not gods of human invention, deserves human praise. So just to remind us, God being jealous and zealous for his honor is good. For you and I to be zealous and jealous for our honor is not good because we're doing it for self. It's selfish in that because we don't deserve the praise. But God does. God is perfectly holy. God is perfectly righteous. God is perfectly loving. And everything we've talked about over these 20 weeks, God is perfectly all these things. He alone, therefore, deserves the praise. And it's good for God to be jealous for his own honor in that. Second of all, God has to reveal his glory for us to see it. Friends, this is not something we can self-discover. We can't just march into the throne room and discover God's majesty on our own here. I'm going to quote Mark Jones from that new book, God Is. God, and thus also his glory, remains incomprehensible to us. He condescends to give us a little taste of his glory because he freely chooses in his glory to reveal himself 
to us. Okay, friends, let that sink in. We give ourselves so much credit for what we know about God. Friends, we, we don't deserve any credit for it. God in his kindness has revealed himself to us. God in his kindness has shown us who he is. And I love the language of Mark Jones. God has condescended to us to give us a glimpse. Let's go, friends, we can't even see it all. But he's given us a glimpse in his kindness to us, have his free choice to us. He has revealed himself to us. And then Mark Jones continues. His majesty, holiness, power, and knowledge are utterly beyond our comprehension. Far from causing despair, this truth should comfort us. We do not need a God we can manage, but one utterly beyond our ability to comprehend. And friends, a lot of times mystery is hard for us. We want everything figured out. But friends, if we can explain everything about God and there's no mystery, that's a God of our own imagination. And we don't want a God we can manage. We want to know God for who he is, who he's revealed himself to be. And he's so much vaster than all of our intellect combined could even begin to grasp. He is so big on that. We get a little taste of this in Exodus chapter 33, verses 18 through 20. Moses said, please show me your glory. How does the Lord answer? Does the Lord answer, sure, come look at it all. Now Moses couldn't survive in that. How does God answer? And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious. And I'll show mercy on whom I show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Friends, if we're going to see God, it's what he reveals of himself to us. Again, even notice that phrase that we don't, hear, we don't talk about a whole lot, but God says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. If we have understanding of even a glimpse of the majesty and glory of God, it's because God in his mercy and kindness has shown that to us. And before we get proud, we realize that he's the one who's shown that to us. Turn the page, number three. As we think about God showing us his glory, though, there's a humbling part that comes with it and should come with it. Because in Scripture, revelations of God's glory often cause fear. You know, we live in a culture that has such a casual approach to God. And by casual, I mean the fact that we don't really have a, a, a seriousness towards sin. We don't seem to understand how majestic and glorious he is, and we kind of treat God as the grandfather. We run and tell him what we want, and we run out with no regard for who he is so often. And yet, in the Scripture, when God shows a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of his glory, people fall on the ground in fear. Look at just a few examples of these. From the book of Job again, Job chapter 13, verse 11. Will not his majesty terrify you and dread of him fall upon you? Friends, what would happen in American Christianity if we realized this type of holy dread if we saw the glory of God? We see a glimpse of that again in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1, <coughs> is Isaiah's calling. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. So let me just pause there. This is about as, it doesn't use the word majesty, but you get majesty here, right? You see the Lord on the throne, high lifted up. That's being exalted. The train of his robe fills the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And wouldn't you like to see that? These beings that are flying around God's throne with six wings, covering their eyes, covering their feet, flying at this point. This isn't fairy tale. This is reality. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So what does Isaiah do? Does he go run around and start jumping up and down, dancing? Woo, I saw God's glory. This is incredible. Let me go tell everybody. What's Isaiah's response when he sees this, this picture of God's glory? And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. When Isaiah comes face to face 
with the majesty and the glory of God. His first response is not jumping up and down with excitement because I'm so amazing. God showed this to me. His first response is, how can I live? I am lost. I am ruined. And you see the Lord then being merciful to him in what follows. Again, from the Christmas story, Luke chapter 2, verse 9. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they jumped up and down and ran all around telling everyone how amazing it was. They were filled with great fear. When the glory of the Lord appears, friends, people of all different backgrounds, Job, Isaiah, the shepherds, they find fear when they see the glory of the Lord, just a glimpse of it. Again, Mark Jones from that book, God Is, says, We know that his majesty is his power, is his justice, is his dominion. The majestic God cannot dwell with or tolerate the proud. And his dominion over them means he can and will judge them. Because remember, God's, God's attributes are all, he's always all the attributes all the time. Think back to the unity of God. That God is fully all the attributes all the time. That means when we see God's glory, we're seeing God's glory. We're seeing in that, yes, the stuff that we run to, that we like so much, like love and grace and mercy. But we're seeing in all of his glory, his justice, his wrath, his judgment, his jealousy, all that as well. And when we realize that, that he is the majestic one who has authority over us and can judge us and will judge us, that brings a holy fear to people's hearts. Fourth, God's glory cannot increase or decrease. Remember the attribute of God's unchangeableness? It's kind of flashback night. We're mentioning a lot of different attributes. But God's unchangeableness, his immutability. <coughs> that night we looked at this quote from A.W. Pink. But God is perpetually the same, subject to no change in his being, attributes, or determination. Therefore, God is compared to a rock, Deuteronomy 32, 4, and others, which remains immovable. When the entire ocean surrounding it is continually in a fluctuating state, because God has no beginning and no ending, he can know no change. God doesn't change. That means God is not more glorious today than he was 100 years ago. And that means in a thousand years from now, God's not going to be more glorious then than he is today. God has always fully been fully majestic, fully glorious. That doesn't rise or fall because it's not dependent on anything external to God. God himself is who God is, and therefore he is fully majestic, fully glorious. Psalm 105 reminds us of that. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. God's glory will not change. When the heavens and earth pass away, when there's a new heaven and new earth, God will be just as glorious then as he is now. Does that mean so that quote we read from Revelation earlier, to when one day there's no need for sun and moons, because God and all of his brilliance will light everything? That's not just future. It's not like God gets brighter at that point. God is that glorious and that majestic today. He was that glorious and that majestic when Adam and Eve were in the garden. And he was that glorious and that majestic 100 trillion years ago. Well, there wasn't even time then. But before that time even existed, God was that glorious. God's glory doesn't rise or fall. He's always fully glorious as much as we see at any point and all the time. He is always who he is. Number five, though, yet we can give God glory. God's glory doesn't increase or decrease, yet we can give God glory. Remember God's independence. Think back to that attribute. My group said God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Friends, we debunked early in this study 20 weeks ago. God didn't make us because he was lonely. God doesn't need anything from us. God doesn't need our worship to be glorious. Again, before the world was even made, God was majestic and glorious. Before there was time, God was majestic and glorious. Before anyone had ever worshipped him, before there was an angel to sing his praises, it was just God, nothing else, just God. He was fully glorious because he, he needed nothing. Mark Jones says about us giving God glory, when we glorify God, we add nothing to his essential glory, the glory he already possesses in himself. So just pause there. We do not sing to God to give him glory, to add glory to him. God is fully glorious 
already. But, Mark Jones continues, we glorify God only as we give him the honor due him in this world according to the way he has dictated in his word. This latter glory has in view our praise, worship, obedience, and delight as we keep the name of the Lord holy in all that we do. So we strive to glorify God, friends. It is good for us to gather together and to glorify God as we sing, to glorify God as we study his word, to glorify God as we pray, to glorify God as we live holy lives. We should be striving for those things to glorify God, not because we're adding to God, but because God is already glorious and we're simply acknowledging the fact he is fully majestic, fully glorious, and we're just proclaiming what's already there back to him. Psalm 86 verses 9 through 12 reminds us, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. Friends, a hundred trillion years from now, we will still be giving God glory. Not adding to his glory, but still proclaiming how glorious he is. And when we see God face to face and see more of how majestic and glorious he is, friends, there's not going to be a day that we run out of things to praise God for. Hundreds of trillions of years down the road, we will still be in awe, amazed, astounded when we see the brilliance of the glory of God. And we won't run out of things to praise him for in that. And yet in this life, until then, 1 Corinthians 10.31 reminds us, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. We're going to do everything in this life with God's glory and view, because that's what he is, desires to happen. So, page six, how should God's majesty and glory affect us? We'll talk more about this in our discussion groups, but three things I want you to think about briefly tonight. Number one, it should lead us to seek God's grace to keep him first in our lives. If we really believe God is glorious and God is majestic, we need to seek him first, not in human strength, but we need his grace to pursue him after in all things. I say here on your sheet here, there's nothing in our lives and no one who is as glorious and as majestic is God. And do we really believe that, friends? It goes back to Sunday morning sermon from the Gospel of John. Do we value Jesus more than everything else? Do we really understand how majestic and how glorious God is? Because if we do, that will change how we use our time. That will change how we use our money. That will change everything about our lives. If we understand there's nothing as glorious as God himself is. But with that said, remember God is jealous for his glory. God will not settle for second place in our lives. Think back to the attribute of God's jealousy. I didn't put it on your hand up, but think back to God's jealousy. And the Spirit of God yearns jealously over you. God is not content to be like, yeah, I'm okay with my, my kids running after worldly things as long as they once a week focus on me for one hour. God is so majestic, so glorious, and demands us to recognize his glory. He will never settle for being second in our lives, whether, he, whether it's second to sports, second to jobs, second to family, second to even church involvement. He will never settle for second place in our lives. He calls us to seek his grace to put him first in everything. Matthew 6, 33, we're commanded to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or Matthew 22, and Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first thing, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. God is so majestic and so glorious. He deserves our entire lives being focused on him. And he demands that as well. He will not settle for second place in our lives. Second of all, it should lead us to seek God's grace to be holy and not to strive in our own strength, but to rely on his grace to pursue holiness. Hebrews 12 makes it very clear for us to strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Again, think back to how people respond to God's majesty and glory when they see it. There's fear. 
And I wonder sometimes if one of the reasons why sin is so rampant in the American church and people seem so, and across American evangelical Christianity, seem so unwilling to deal with sin in their life and feel like it's okay, oh, God just loves me and forgives me, I can do what I want to do. It's because we've lost the awe and the wonder of God's glory and majesty. If we understand how majestic and glorious God is, how can we run back to that stronghold of sin over and over and not care if we understand what God demands of us? John Calvin said this, Hence that dread and wonder with which Scripture commonly represents the saints is stricken and overcame when they felt the presence of God. Again, in his kind of translation in older English here, but when the saints see the presence of God, they're stricken and overcome. I think we lose that sometimes today. Thus it comes about that we see men who in his absence normally remain firm and constant, but who when he manifests his glory are so shaken and struck dumb as to be laid low by the dread of death, are in fact overwhelmed by it and almost annihilated. So again, he's saying here, picture the strongest men you can think of. People are so confident. When they see the glory of God, they are shaken and struck dumb, and it looks like they're almost annihilated. I mean, look at Isaiah, this great prophet. And when he sees God, he's not like going out, everyone, look at what I've done. Instead, his confidence all just shrivels up. And he goes, woe is me. Calvin continues here. As a consequence, we must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he's compared himself with God's majesty. Let that one sink in there. We must infer that man is never sufficiently touched and affected by the awareness of his lowly state until he's compared himself with God's majesty. Friends, I wonder if one reason we don't pause to think about God's majesty and glory enough is because it puts us in our place. And we're in a culture that wants to say how great we are. It starts with childhood and it goes through adulthood of how awesome you are and how amazing it is. And God died because he loves you so much and because you're so amazing. God did all this for you because you're so great. You're so great. You're so great. Man, if I'm so great, I can go live like I want to live. Give God second and everything's okay. That's not what the gospel is. The gospel is you're awful. You're wretched. You're terrible. You're an enemy of God. And there's nothing in you that God should love. But God being rich in mercy drew you. God being rich in mercy loved you when you were unloving, took you as enemy and made you his friend. And so I wonder sometimes if we don't, we're not drawn to this attribute because it forces us to see how lowly we are and how glorious God is and it puts us in our place. So God's majesty and glory should seek, should cause us to seek grace to keep him first, should cause us to seek grace to be holy. And third, it should lead us to reverence, to awe and to worship. When we met two weeks ago, we looked at this particular text in Hebrews, but it's a good reminder. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What draws us to worship is not listed here as the love, the kindness, all these things that we're drawn to. What is, why we're drawn to worship is because God is a consuming fire. Or Psalm 27, 4, for this to be our prayer, this is an amazing thing if this happens in our lives, friends. One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after. So what's the one thing he's going to ask for? To be smart, to have riches, to be popular, to be friends, to have lots of friends? No. What's the one thing the psalmist wants? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Why? To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. The one thing that he longs for more than anything else in the world is simply to look at the glory and majesty of the Lord. As such, Wayne Grudem says, the greatness of God's being, the perfection of all his attributes, is something we can never fully comprehend, but before which we can only stand in awe 
and in worship. And friends, if one thing I hope you've gotten out of these 20 weeks of study so far is we're barely scratching the surface of who God is. And I hope it lets us realize not that, man, I've studied 20 weeks of basically systematic theology of the attributes of God. Man, I've got God figured out. No, I hope it's shown you the more you've learned about God, the more we really don't know about God and how big he is. And I hope that leads us to a place to hunger more for him and to ultimately to, to respond in awe and worship of a God who is so big that our little tiny finite minds have such a hard time getting around who he is. So how do we grow in understanding these things? So turn to page seven. How do we get our minds to continue to be stretched to understand God's majesty and glory? If understanding God's majesty and glory will help us keep God first, will help us be holy, will help us have reverence, awe, and worship, how do we grow in this? What are some practical things we can do to better know God's glory and think about his majesty and his grandeur, greatness, perfections, blessedness, all these summary attributes? Well, I'm going to quote from J.I. Packer, Knowing God, one of the books I mentioned at the beginning that's out in the hallway. He gives two very, very practical things I think that would help us think more about God's glory. Number one, he says, remove from our thoughts of God limits that would make him small. Remove from your thinking any limits in your thinking that would make God small. In other words, in our minds, again, going back to that first quote from Luther on the very first page, your thoughts of God are too human, too often we put God in a box. of What God can do, God has to do. But God is so big, we shouldn't limit him in our thinking. And so one place if you want to get stretched to make sure you realize that there's no limits to God and see a ton of God's attributes is Psalm 139. Let me just read this for us and listen to the fact there's no limits to God's knowledge in here. That's God's omniscience. We talked about that attribute. There's no limits to God's presence. That's his omnipresence. He's everywhere. That's in here. There's no limits to God's power, his omnipotence. You'll see several of these attributes in here. And, and look at how there's no limits to God in this one passage. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, even before, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. Make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inmost parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. In your, sorry, in your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and still I am with you. Does he notice that? Right in here, there's no limits to God. God knows all things about me. You've searched me. You know me. You know my thoughts. You know my words before I speak them. There's nothing, there's no limits to what God knows about you personally or about anything in the universe. There's no limits to God's presence. Where will I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go to Sheol, you're there. There's nowhere we can escape God. There's no limits to his presence or no limits to his power. He's the one who forms our lives in the secret place. And so you see just these glimpses of this. So friends, if you find and you're thinking that God is limited, go to the Psalms, go to other scripture, and let them just blow your mind wide open to the fact that there's no limits anywhere to God. Well, the second suggestion Packard gives for us to think better about God's glory and majesty is this. Compare God with things that you think are great. Compare the forces that you're great. And so I, when I think this, you know, you look at something like 
Hurricane Harvey or Hurricane Nate coming in. And you see the vastness and the power of these winds that are hundreds of miles an hour and the vastness of storms that are as big as Texas. And we look at the greatness and the power of all that and think with all of our technology and all the wisdom of humanity, we can't do anything about it. There's not one thing we do to stop that storm. There's not one thing we do to change its course. There's nothing we can do to affect the winds, the rains, nothing. And you look at that, and that is minuscule in comparison to God's power. Think about the most powerful things you can think of. Think about the smartest people you can think about, and then think about God. And he's so much more majestic and glorious and bigger. For example, Isaiah 40 in this, if we want to consider the power of God, just and think about how much more powerful God is than anything we see on earth. Look at Isaiah 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? And marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are counted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Now just pause there at the end of verse 15. Think about the wisest people you know, the best group of scholars you could put together. Who could teach God anything? There's nothing, because God already knows it all, and we know nothing apart from him. Verse 16, Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor is beast enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. So put all the armies of the world together. Put the UN, put all these things together. Think of all the power and might. If you could put all the armies, all the nuclear warheads, all the tanks, everything in the world together, and in God's eyes, verse 17, there is nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Put all the military might of every military group in the entire world together, and God says, it's nothing. It's actually less than nothing. It's not even emptiness to God because he's so big. Verse 18, to whom then will you liken God or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman cast it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it for, cast for its silver chains. He was too impoverished for an offering, chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. And so now you put all the population of all the earth together, the billions of people, and to God they're what? Grasshoppers. They're bugs. They're nothing to him. He's so big and so vast. So put all the, the mass, think of the intellect and the strength of all the people on earth combined, and God kind of yawns and goes, yeah, that's like grasshoppers to me here. Verse 23, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness? Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them, and they wither, and tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me? That should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. So, Guys, when you go out tonight and look at the stars... God calls them all by name. We can't even find them all in the universe. And he knows them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not grow faint or weary. His understanding is unsearchable. So friends, when you think about the greatness of God. If you're having trouble focusing on God's glory and majesty, think of the strongest things you can think of on earth. Armies, nations, peoples, storms, and then read Isaiah 40. Realize how small it all is compared to the vastness of our God.
So I want us to get into groups tonight and discuss a few things together as we, as we think about God's majesty and glory, these summary attributes of God. And so here's five or six questions for us on this one. <clears throat> Number one, God has revealed to us how glorious and majestic he is. Yet, as Martin Luther once said, your thoughts of God are too human. Why do our thoughts about God fall so short? I mean, look at what we just read in Isaiah. Look at some of these texts we've seen and just these pictures throughout all of Scripture of the majesty of God. Why do our thoughts often not go there? I don't know about you, but for me, there's a lot of days I get up and I completely have lost sight of the majesty and glory of God. Days can go by and I have lost the awe and the wonder of the majesty and glory of God. How is that possible when it's everywhere in his creation and it's everywhere in Scripture? So why do, we, why do our thoughts fall so short? Second question, Psalm 27, 4 says, One thing I have asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. How can we grow in our desire to see the majesty and glory of the Lord? So how can we grow in this area? What can we do as God's people to better understand his majesty and glory? Number three, if we reflected more about God's majesty and glory, how would our daily lives be different? What would change, friends, if every day, not just when we got up in the mornings, but throughout the day, we thought about God's majesty and glory? Number four, I want us to reread Luke chapter 2, verse 9. That's the shepherds being afraid in God's presence. And then, or the, in, the, in the light of the glory of the Lord. And then Revelation 21, 23, that's where there's no sun because the light is everywhere. Throughout Scripture, the response of the people to God's glory is fear, much like the shepherds in Luke 2. Will we have that fear when we see God face to face in the future? So throughout the Bible, we see God's glory manifest. People fall on their face in fear. But the day is coming, there'll be no sun, and God's glory is a light. Will there be fear there? Why or why not? Number five, John Piper popularized the saying, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. How does our finding great satisfaction and joy in God bring him more glory? And we say God can't increase in glory. He's fully glorious all the time. But how does our lives give greater glory to God when we are more satisfied in him, when we delight in him more? What difference does that make? And then finally, this is going to be easier than a lot of the other weeks, right? What songs do you know that, that, that describe God's glory and majesty? I think this may be the easiest song one of all of the attributes. So what are some of the songs you can think about in your groups tonight? So let's divide up into several groups here. So Dave, let's get a group going in the back back there. Greg, let's do a group with you up here in the front. Ira, you get to lead a group back there tonight? So Ira will be a group back there, and I'll do a group right down here in the front. So let's divide up into those four groups, and I think we should be good with this. Actually, we may just be good with three. So let's go ahead and let's just do, let's do Ira back there, Dave back there, and Greg up here, and let's split up into those three groups.